VoiceAmerica.com. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. Uh, today I'm broadcasting from Brooksville, Florida, which is where our Westbridge South program is located. We're about 40 miles north of Tampa, which is right near the Republican Convention and Tropical Storm Isaac. So we've been watching the radar today with uh, great interest, but mostly it was, it's been much to do about nothing. So um, I hope you all are having a great Monday. Uh, I think... Our topic today is one that is of great interest to all of us. Um, just before I came online today, I saw there was a shooting at a Baltimore high school. First day back at school, a young man was shot by another young man. And our what we're going to be talking about today are troubled teens and options for troubled teens, specifically looking at the continuum of care that includes therapeutic schools. Our guests are Mary Jo DeGrandy, Director of Admissions at the Academy at Swift River. Uh, Swift River is a therapeutic boarding school located in western Massachusetts. For the past 20 years, Mary Jo has worked as an educator and clinician, specializing in adolescent and families in many settings, including therapeutic boarding schools, therapeutic wilderness programs, and residential treatment centers, as well as in traditional and non-traditional academic environments. She brings this hands-on experience and understanding of the continuum of care for adolescents to work with her families. Her goal of providing the best information and guidance to family in need is supported by the philosophy of care within the Aspen Education Group, as well as by the professionalism and ethics of her colleagues who work for and with the Academy. Our other guest today is Thomas Ahern. He is a former school psychologist and Connecticut Public School Administrator working as the Director of Clinical Outreach for the Aspen Education Group, the nation's leading provider of therapeutic education programs for underachieving young people. Mr. Hearn has served in leadership positions in education and behavioral health care for most of his 25-year professional career, including Director of Partial Hospitalization, Adult Education Director, Assistant Principal, and Private Practitioner. Mr. Hearn has been long an advocate for new models in behavioral health care services for students, founding several innovative programs to integrate resources from both the public and private sectors to improve the continuum of care for teens and young adults. So welcome. Mary Jo and Thomas to our show today. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, you know, the, the, as I said, you know, I've been watching the Internet and looking at this shooting in Baltimore and just thinking about when I was young um, a number of years ago that <laughs> we never even had to deal with this. I mean, you know, it seems to me like it's really hard to be a young person right now and is that true, or, is I'm, or am I just kind of overreacting? Well, I, I think you make a really good point. I mean, you know, there are so many influencing factors that are going into, you know, whether or not our families can maturate young people that are ready to contribute to our society and to feel good about themselves and understand their place, um, you know, as well as our support services. that They're just uh, rapidly changing and lengths of stay for people who do need support and help uh, is changing our our access to services is uh, more challenging than ever, and as a result, the diversity of young people that are entering the system looking for support 
is wider than ever, and so it challenges us as professionals to be, you know, sort of up to date on what kind of services are available and how to assess and diagnose what the kinds of issues are that are affecting young people that are uh, affecting their behaviors. It's really a complicating and challenging time for everyone. Mary Jo, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I would agree, and I would say that, you know, we certainly see so many um, young people who are affected by depression, anxiety, um, and, you know, at, at rates that I, I would say I, I think are probably higher than what has been seen in the past. Um, you know, I think it's, as, as Thomas pointed out, it's, it's hard to know what the what the reasons are, um, but it certainly is uh, impacted by any number of any a number of factors. And I think that parents are at a loss, school uh, folks are at a loss, professionals are sometimes at a loss. Is how do we best you know identify what's really going on? What are the messages underneath the behaviors that we see, and how do we best support these young people? Um, and, and help their parents and families as well to be able to access uh, support along the way. It seems like there are so many options. As Thomas alluded to, um, there's the Internet, there's Facebook, there's um, cell phones, there's Twitter, and, and um, you know, everybody has a cell phone. When I was growing up, we had one phone for the whole family, and we had one television in the whole house. And... Um, it just seems to me like kids are bombarded with stimuli plus video games. And I don't know how young people sort all that out. Right. They're so plugged in, and I think they are bombarded with information, and there's no, there's no way to slow it down. You know, I mean, they're, they're expected to sort of keep track not just of what's going on in the world around them, what's going on with their friends, how do they continue to communicate where they're at. The, the expectation around that is so great that I think it provides, um, you know, a pretty stressful environment as well. Yeah. And, and you know, Mary, it's, uh, it comes at a time when, you know, the amount of time that young people spend in direct uh, didactic conversation, positively focused conversation with their parents, less, less time than ever. I mean, there was a study done, you know, it, it must be uh, 15 years old now, but a guy named Stephen Glenn, a, a psychologist that wrote a, a book called Developing Capable Young People. And one of the pieces that was most striking to me when I was reviewing this literature was that, you know, if you go back 50 years or so, even further, you know, the average amount of time that a young person spent with their parent in, in learning values and morals and how to find a, their way in life and uh, interacting in a way that uh, made them feel whole and centered and connected to their families, you know, averaged about, you know, four or five hours a day. And that's where, you know, a lot of that stuff sort of um, was taught. But if you look at today's society, I mean, the amount of time that a young person spends in direct relationship with their parent, learning those same kinds of practical or functional skills, it's really re reduced to, you know, less than half an hour. And usually that stuff is a one-way negatively toned, you know, um, statement towards, towards a child. And so um, the question has to do with so where are our kids learning, so, um, where are they learning how to be who they're going to be? How do they learn their values? How do they learn how to make decisions and resist temptations? Um, you know, the factors that have gone into parenting uh, over the 21st century uh, that have impacted the values and um, stimulation of our kids, everything from television to Internet to transportation, 
uh, have just are so multifaceted that our parenting techniques and skills really haven't kept up. And it's really, you know, we've done it in such a short period of time in our society. In the last, you know, 60, 70 years, we've just gone from this urban environment to this, I mean, from an agricultural environment to a, a highly urban environment where a lot of those things are missing. And as a result, I think we're paying the price. Mm-hmm. Mary Jo, you had alluded to the fact that you're seeing more young people with depression and anxiety. Are there other um, behavioral health, I say that in quotations, because they're really mental illnesses that you are seeing a pro- proliferation of besides that? Well, I think there's so much that's ra- that's wrapped up in those, um, you know, those mood disorder diagnoses, and you know, they can be often hard to tease apart. Um, I think what we often see or what we often hear on on our end are you know, the behaviors, the behaviors that parents are seeing. So whether that's um, you know a, a decreased motivation academically, where um, these are young people who were, you know, doing very well up until, you know, eighth, ninth grade, and then all of a sudden started um, falling apart. We see, um, you know, increased oppositionality in the home. Um, you know, oppositional defiant disorder is certainly a diagnosis that we see a lot of here. Um, and so, but what is what is that coming from? How is that generated? Um, you know, that goes back to, to Thomas's point about you know the level of interaction between parents and their children, and and as well as you know how society supports that or doesn't support that. Um, we see, uh, you know, we see increased, of course, uh, use of substances for our young people, and certainly increased availability. Of uh, of substances that kids are turning to um, in order to tone it down a little, tone down those emotions a little, um, because there is uh, some decrease, I think, in in uh, our young people knowing how to manage complex, difficult emotions. Um, and to find the support that they need for those things. So I, I think that, you know, certainly there's a wide range of diagnoses that we see in young people, um, you know, but oftentimes I think that, that those diagnoses are wrapped up in um, all of the behavior, the externalizing behaviors or the internalizing behaviors, certainly an increase in self-harming behaviors we see with young people. Um, you know, where is that coming from? What other outlets do these young people have? How do they learn those coping skills that can help uh, decrease the real prevalence or presence of uh, some of the, uh, you know, the, the mental health issues? So, um, so I think that, you know, that those, all of those things kind of get wrapped up together. But, you know, Mary, Mary Jo, I think we both agree when we were talking the other day, I think, you know, one of the things uh, that, you know, Mary Jo and I talk about is that we just seem, if you just sort of took a thematic impression of things, we just see a lot of anxiety. I mean, mm-hmm. do, you, do, you see, do you see the same thing, Mary? I mean, is that something that uh, um, you just sort of see a, a, a society that just sort of feels, you know, on edge all the time. I think what um, what we see, uh, we treat folks that have major mental illness and substance use disorders, and a lot of the young folks that we see um, just do not have the skills to deal with distress. Um, they they can't tolerate immediate energy of any kind that's that's negative. You know, that as you both were talking about, those coping skills are just absent. And um, and they they flounder and and sometimes they act out or sometimes they they harm themselves. But basically, it's their inability 
to cope. And I developmentally, something got lost along the way. Mm-hmm. Right. We're also seeing a lot of young people that, you know, they're sort of patched together. You know, the, the, you, know you hear a lot about in the news these days about sort of helicopter parenting and, you know, parents doing a real lot or, or too much to try to support their kids in, you know, making their way along uh, the route of, uh, you know, childhood into young adulthood. And then they get to the, their first or two years, second year of college, and because they haven't sort of had to problem solve on their own, and they've been so dependent on technology, their frontal cortex of their brain hasn't developed enough, and they get to college and all of a sudden they've got to start planning ahead and figuring out this stuff on their own, and they're dropping out, and they're coming home, and they uh, can't seem to make it. You know, that syndrome of sort of failure to launch um, mm-hmm. just seems to be something that we see a lot of. So the anxiety and the sort of inability to sort of, I call it matur- maturate and contribute and take care of themselves is really something that we've just, over the last, I don't know, what's it like, Mary Jo, you know, maybe two years, two and a half years? Certainly. Yeah, and that. maybe even a little, maybe even a little longer. And I, you know, to go along with that, you know, I know that there have been some recent articles in in the New York Times and and other places around, you know, this about you know our young people learning to tolerate disappointment, and you know, the whole movement to increase the self esteem of our young people has um, sort of gone in the other direction um, because. The philosophy, parenting philosophy, coaching philosophy um, has been very much geared towards not allowing students to feel failure or disappointment. Of course, that has sort of come back around um, in not such a positive way where I think we see young people who um, really struggle with uh, entitlement, um, feeling like things are are owed to them or they don't quite know how to work through um, those disappointments that are just a natural part of life. Um, And so, therefore, the the things that happen to us all normally, naturally, when we kind of make a mistake or fall on our face is that they don't have the skill set to be able to pick themselves up and dust themselves off and say, oh, okay, you know, this is what I can learn from this and then move forward. And instead, those blows are much more crushing. Um, And 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 we'll be right back after this message. um, And we'll uh, hold that thought, Mary Jo, okay? We need to take a break. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities 
commodities and real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Our guests today are Mary Jo DeGrandi, who is the Director of Admissions at the Academy at Swift River, and Thomas Ahern, Director of Clinical Outreach for Aspen Education Group. And we're talking about troubled teens, and we're going to be looking at the continuum of care and therapeutic schools available for for young folks. Um, and before we get to that, I'd just like to talk a little bit about the, the silent troubled teen, teens, if you were, the the, the young people who, who aren't acting out as much, they seem to be keeping it all inside. Maybe they're victims of bullying or maybe they're having, um, you know, uh, struggles with their sexual identity or they're depressed. And um, I'm wondering about what you both are seeing with these kind of the silent young folks. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say that, you know, we, we really see a combination of the two. And it used to be that we sort of had this um, this paradigm where boys were the ones who externalized their behavior and girls were more apt to internalize their behavior. And I would say there's much more of a crossover uh, between the two now, and I don't think that um, that's as, it's as easy to separate it out um, that way. We certainly see young people with a school refusal. Um, sometimes that's related to bullying. Sometimes it's related to, you know, undiagnosed learning differences that are sort of haven't come out for a while, um, but certainly I think that we see that as, as an issue. Um, kids sort of, sort of shutting down, um, you know, kind of crawling under the covers or, or just staying in the house and, and not engaging or feeling really isolated from their peers. So they're sort of floating around in, um, you know, in, in this isolation. And um, I think parents and professionals often can be at a loss as to how to, how to help, how to help a child um, get more engaged or reach out for help. Um, you know, and I think that goes back to what we were talking about a little earlier with with cutting behavior, self-harming behaviors. Um, that's sometimes, uh, you know, can be really very silent and very hidden uh, for many of our young people. Yeah, I think, you know, um, Mary, that, you know, a lot of that stuff can be, you know, clumped into the category of sort of trauma, that there's usually some underlying trauma that's associated with why a young person uh, comes into one of our programs, and as you sort of scrape away the veneer or peel away the onion layers, underneath it all, um, and w- even when you talk about trauma, it could be everything from you know some kind of grief and loss because there's been some kind of separation or loss in their life, or there's been some inappropriate behaviors or some kind of other kind of sexual abuse or something along those lines. But um, you know, kids are a multifaceted tapestry of uh, you know colors and shapes and sizes and you know, the, the thing that, you know, we feel responsible for is creating a safe, predictable environment where young people can feel like they're in a place that they can begin to explore themselves, whether it be their sexuality or they've kept a, a secret that no one knows about. Um, 
but they can begin to explore that in a, in a positive peer milieu where um, they feel safe to explore that stuff and learn more about who they are and try to resolve some of the issues that brought them into us. Uh, interesting that you brought up the issue around sexuality. Um, uh, Mary Jo and I were just sitting across the table the other day from a young man who uh, pronounced his that he was a, a homosexual and that he, he had learned at the Academy of Swift River that it was okay and that he felt good about himself and he had enough confidence and self-worth that he could express himself in a public... We were actually giving a tour at that time. Um, maybe, or Joe, you want to talk a little bit about that for a second? Sure, yeah. And it was a, it's a very, you know, I mean, I think it's a, a story that we hear, um, you know, uh, with some, some regularity, um, as much as I think that our society and our culture has become more accepting, um, a more open uh, place for, you know, dialogue around sexuality. Um, I still think that there, for many of our young people, there's a lot of shame associated with it. Uh, for this young man in particular, um, it was not, uh, you know, it was not family related. His family was aware of his sexuality, but it was really peer-based. He couldn't, didn't feel um, any sense of self-worth, um, felt very, uh, shame, very shamed um, by this and has really really come to a place where he has expressed uh, confidence, actually very recently was able to uh, come out to his friends with a very clear assertion for himself that if his friends couldn't uh, accept this information, couldn't accept this uh, from him, that he was okay with the fact that those friends might not be um, good friends for him. They might not be good friends to him. But that's a pretty big risk, um, I think, for a young person, um, as it is for, for anyone uh, coming out. And I think we still, you know, certainly see that and uh, and see that prior, you know, as prior to that process of self-confidence and, and uh, self-awareness, um, that the shaming behavior can lead to some of those uh, more internal uh, kinds of, you know, doubts, shame, cutting, um, hiding out, decline in academic performance, uh, withdrawal from, you know, sort of the, the world around them. Um, and so, you know, certainly that's something I think to, to be very aware of, um, that there's still a lot of work to be done around helping our, our young people feel safe. Do we really... Um let me be more positive in my question. <laughs> what works for treating adolescents? Because I know in addiction treatment for years, we took what we knew about adults and applied it to kids, and we didn't have the best outcomes. So what have we learned that works? Well, I know at the Academy at Swift River, you know, so much of it is about um, relationship building. And I think that, you know, it's not sort of a, a one-size-fits-all. You know, for, for us, it's really important that we, uh, you know, as Thomas stated before, that we have a very clear, predictable structure, very clear, predictable uh, environment for our students, but at the same time that we really, you know, see them as individuals and ask them, you know, what going to work for them. Um, so many of them don't have a clue as to what kinds of coping strategies are going to be helpful for them. So we have to really introduce them to a wide range of, you know, activities, strategies for managing stress, anxiety, depression, for, for learning how to recognize their own emotions. Many students come to us without knowing how to name what they're feeling. Um, and and also then beyond that, knowing how to manage those things. So, so we find that it's really you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, it has to be very much about 
Um, I think for so long we've heard you know, that young people having mentors was often what makes all the difference in their ability to be successful, and I think there's such truth to that, that the mentors that they're surrounded with are people who are interested in getting to know them and then taking what we know, you know, in the clinical realm and saying, how do we tweak this a little bit to help it, you know, help these skill sets be, uh, be workable for this particular individual? You know, a couple of the other things I think that are, you know, just to sort of supplement what Mary Jo said, you know, one of the things that we find that's really useful for kids is when kids are working with other kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, small group environment where, you know, they can talk to each other and benefit from other, each other's insights or, um, you know, feedback. That's always really helpful to a lot of different groups, whether they be theme-based groups or sometimes it's explicit training. So, you know, we'll implement a, uh, you know, dialectical behavior therapy where maybe we're actually, you know, teaching a skill and then we're taking that after we're teaching the skill, like I statements, um, to com- improve communication. Um, we might actually uh, role model that and practice that in a small group and then allow kids to give uh, feedback to each other about how well they did and support each other in that way. We know that kids just sort of like that feedback and working with each other as opposed to feeling like, they're being, um, you know, uh, working with an, an adult who um, feels like they're in a different um, level, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's some of the things that work really well. We also realize that kids like to get their hands dirty. They like to be involved and actively engaged in their education and their treatment. So a lot of times um, to get through resistance, we can get them engaged in activities, whether they be experiential you know, outdoor adventure-based uh, kinds of activities, or they're involved with cleaning or the uh, uh, maintenance of their own home, their own environment. Um, kids can often have conversations sideways. So while you're engaged in one activity, um, all of a sudden it presents a, a metaphor of an opportunity or a situation in their life where they can begin to talk about it from the sort of the sideways. And next thing you know, they're involved in a deep conversation that, is something that uh, they, they weren't comfortable talking about in another environment. So, you know, those are a couple of the things that I think are important to what we've learned about kids and, and uh, how we can work with them in full ways. What about family treatment? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, and, you know, one of the reasons I started by talking about, you know, families is because, um, you know, not only do we think of things in terms of a systems approach to all of our kids. So we've got heavy involvement with family education and family seminars and, you know, all all those uh, um, supplemental um, pieces that make up that. But without the family being involved in a young person's treatment, we really feel like we're we're at a complete disadvantage. So the family is the source of a whole lot of you know, feedback and information and knowledge, and we have to work with the whole system in order to improve the likelihood of success. So, I don't know, Mary Jo, I know there's a, we have a large family component to the program. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about that. Right, and well, and you know, what I was going to say is that I think it's also really important that our young people know that their parents um, and their family are also working on themselves and working on the family as a whole unit. Um, I think that it's it can be really 
uh, devastating for a young person in treatment to feel like they're the one that needs to be quote-unquote fixed. I know that something's wrong with them. You know, that whole issue of being the identified patient in the family and that it's so often um, just a huge uh, a huge component of a young person's treatment when they feel like their parents um, or their siblings are coming in, whether that's for family therapy or coming in for a visit where uh, they're having goals that they're working on collectively for that young person to feel like, okay, this is not just about me. Boy, you know, mom and dad are learning how to do things differently as well. You know, they're, they're t- I see them talking to me differently or, or listening to what I have to say and, and trying to make some changes or, geez, you know, I see that, you know, I can, uh, I can work on my relationship with my sister or my brother. Um, and they're responding differently. And, and that, thing, that, I think, allows a young person um, to sort of, you know, drop their shoulders in relief for a moment and say, okay, you know, this is about all of us and we're all in it together. Um, and, that's, uh, and, and that's just hugely critical. And we see the best outcomes uh, for our young people whose parents are or whose family members are the most involved um, in the process. At Westbridge, we see the exact same thing. When the family's involved, we have our best outcomes, and um, it, uh, the families tend to be our best allies um, when, when people are in treatment. And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk more with Thomas and Mary Jo. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, in our next segment, we're going to be talking with Mary Jo and Thomas about what are the options for troubled teens. We'll look at the continuum of care and talk about um, therapeutic schools and other options as well. So when we think about a continuum, we think about um, from the lowest level of care to the highest level of care. And um, so could you describe for us exactly what is available for young people today? 
Well, uh, well, Mary, I think you know, um, you know, there are several different layers, and and the, each one of those layers uh, shifts at any given time mm-hmm. based on a variety of different uh, situations, whether it be uh, you know the, accessing services at the private level or the public level. Um, they all have different sort of variables, and young people enter the continuum. If you think of it as a staircase, you know, moving up in terms of acuity or intensity, um, starting at the bottom with the lowest level, you know, a young person who might exhibit some depression, as you were saying earlier, or some other um, concerning issue might start off maybe by seeing a school counselor um, at school where they're every day. That's what kids do most. Um, or maybe they'll start at an outpatient level in, an, in a private practitioner where they're going to see a therapist for you know, an hour a week or something along those lines, and maybe the family will be involved and maybe they won't. But, you know, outpatient services or outpatient or school-based services are pretty, the, pretty much the lowest level of care. Um, in addition, they might, there might be a community-based uh, health center or a youth service bureau, which engages in positive youth activities, everything from, you know, going canoeing um, or providing some short-term um, counseling type uh, activity. Then from there, you might move up into if things uh, weren't progressing that you want, or, or or a young person who was exhibiting behaviors that seemed to require more than that. Maybe you move to sort of a uh, an intensive outpatient level of care, where a therapist might pick from a menu of services that can surround that young person. Um, with a variety of different, maybe it's a group therapy twice a week and maybe an individual session once a week um, or something along those lines. Would you say that's fair, Mary Jo? Yeah, I would say that's right. Um, and as you continue to sort of uh, move up the scale, and, and again, um, you know, I think t- in today's uh, world, we're trying more and more to customize uh, intensive outpatient services or even any of those kinds of services uh, based on a really good assessment and diagnostic picture so that we can align the services to whatever the specific needs of an individual kid is or a family. Um, I think the days are gone. And that's, and that's part of what happened to partial hospitalization. As you move up one step further, you know, partial hospitalization might be where a young person goes to a program in their community. It's still ambulatory care where they're living at home but they're going to treatment, say, you know, four times a week for four hours or six hours. Now, that would be a whole sort of program that's involved, you know, group therapy every day. There's a milieu, an environment, and a program. And that could be affiliated with a school, a clinical day school, or not a school. It just depends on the level of need for that, a particular uh, young person. Partial hospitals typically you know, have a program, and then a young person sort of goes into the program, and there's less sort of customization to that. Um, and I think that's why they've fallen a little bit out of popularity, and um, intensive outpatient programs have sort of much supplanted them. Um, but ne- nevertheless, there's still, and I imagine um, uh, you have you have uh, young uh, adults that participate in partial hospitalizations. Mary? Well, we use uh, an assertive community outreach team, so um, most most of our uh, therapeutic interventions are done in the community. We do have individual sessions and groups, but it's more Mm -hmm. community-based. I I wondered if you could explain for our listeners, what is a therapeutic school? Okay, good. So, so 
So when the ambulatory services or, you know, the kinds of services you're describing have been exhausted, then sometimes young people have to move into a residential level of care. And residentials take on a variety of different settings. So there could be sort of like a wilderness therapy program, um, a residential treatment center, or a therapeutic boarding school. Pretty much all of them have a multidisciplinary approach, um, and young people live at that uh, in those environments. So since you asked about therapeutic boarding school, I'll let Mary Jo talk a little bit about that, and if maybe we have time, we can talk a little bit about wilderness or residential treatment um, in addition to that. So... So the Academy at Swift River is, a, is considered a therapeutic boarding school, and the goal of our program is uh, for we, we operate primarily with students who have had um, some sort of initial uh, treatment uh, tr- that they were involved with. with. Um, often it is uh, they certainly often had some um, outpatient therapy, and then many of our students have participated in another uh, more intensive uh, initial kind of treatment, whether that's wilderness therapy or whether that's a hospitalization program or hospital-based program. So our goal is really to provide sort of a normative setting. So we're set up in structure much like a traditional boarding school, except that you know our structure is, is uh, and our supervision is quite a bit tighter, and the goal of every aspect of our program is really to provide a level of therapeutic support. So if a student who is struggling with um, anxiety, for example, is in the classroom, then our classrooms are going to be set up in such a way that we're seeking to reduce some of that anxiety to provide some additional supports, to be able to recognize and help students gain some coping strategies around anxiety that may come up for them in that setting. Um, The residential component of our program is really set up to be a practice ground, if you will, for them to, for our students to implement um, new coping strategies. A student who has low frustration tolerance, for example, is probably less likely to experience uh, that reduced uh, frustration tolerance when they're sitting across from their therapist in an individual therapy session, but they sure might experience it when they're on the soccer field <laughs> and, um, you know, they, they've missed a kick or, um, you know, aren't having the greatest game. And so all of our staff are really trained to sort of do some of that individual coaching, mentoring, you know, pulling a student aside, saying, hey, what happened there? How do we, you know, what, is there another way that we can um, support you in managing what's coming up for you? So that, that student is really surrounded um, not just by individual therapy and group therapy, um, but they're also, you know, when they're in the classroom or when they're having dinner with their peers or when they're having a weekend visit with their, with their parents um, to really provide that level of clinical support so that they are constantly sort of practicing um, new skills, and that if they're, you know, if they're making a mistake, if they're struggling in some way, that they've got that backup capacity to sort of pull things back for um, a little bit and exploring what's going on and how do we create an opportunity out of that for them to learn something new that they can then apply um, to their lives well beyond um, the time that they're here. Are there different types of therapeutic schools? Are there some that specialize maybe more with um, personality disorders and some specialize more with um, anxiety, or do do they all um, treat addiction? 
It's a great question. There, there are some real differences uh, between uh, different therapeutic schools. Uh, so there will be some therapeutic programs out there that have um, a really strong substance abuse component, for example, and some for whom uh, that component isn't going to be, you know, as as strong. For us, we require a primary uh, a primary treatment for our students if they're really struggling with substances. Although we certainly see students who are coming in with those diagnoses, um, there has to be a level of stability, and then we can support that ongoing recovery work in our setting. Um, you know, other programs may or may not have, you know, a, a licensed drug or drug and alcohol counselor on their staff that can support that. Um, there are some programs that are going to uh, that may sort of turn the academic day on its head, for example, so that they're really uh, looking primarily at uh, skill building or at, you know, adventure-based programming with the academics being a lesser component. Um, for the Academy at Swift River, we're very much a college preparatory school. We want our, our students to continue to strive for academic success as many of our students have had that in the past. Other, other schools may play down the academics more in favor of the therapeutic component. Um, so it's, it's really Really, all about fit. I think when when families are looking at a therapeutic boarding school as an option, it's really important that they are, have you know an awareness of what their child needs, and that they're really you know listening to the professionals that are guiding them as well, who can say, "Gosh, this is the, um, these are, let's take a look at what your child's strengths are, as well as what their struggles are, and then we can find a fit for um, for a program out there that's going to match your child's needs." Right, and sometimes they're maybe they're looking for an all gir- all girls therapeutic boarding school, which is one of the programs that we offer as well. Or maybe they're looking for a, a, a therapeutic boarding school for all boys who have learning disabilities. So, Mary, you're absolutely correct. There's lots of different types of therapeutic boarding schools. I think the uh, the takeaway is that they're all pretty exceptional experiences and a gift for a young person that can participate in one that may need it. They're going to get a, a really rich uh, education. With, uh, supplemented with all of the kinds of um, activities and events that you'd expect from a private school education. And that's what's really great about <laughs> ASR is it, everything from photography to sports to uh, art to culture, off, off-ground activities, etc., as well as AA, NA, and both on and off grounds. Is there an association that families can go to or a website that families can go to that kind of help them sort all this out? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Well, one of the things that we do is, I mean, the uh, the Aspen Education, the www.aspeneducation.com, there are 17 different programs that are listed under there, and it helps. It's also a sort of a one-stop shop to help young uh, parents to uh, differentiate the difference between the levels of care and the variety of programs within that. At the same time, we work with professionals called educational consultants that oftentimes can help um, parents to sort out a complicated decision like that. Um, so between between us as professionals that work within the system as well as some of our partners in, um, with educational consultants, we act as a resource for parents and how to help reduce their anxiety and empower them through education and knowledge and someone that they feel they can trust and talk to to help figure out how to access services and what is the appropriate level of service for their kid. What's the graduation rate? Well, that's that's an interesting question as well. So our program is geared to have the majority of our students are with us for, say, 12 to 24 months. So 
so it's important to note that because a student who's coming in as a freshman or a sophomore um, to our school may be with us for a year or for a year and a half with the goal being to help them gain enough skills and independence um, in the way that they're operating in the world that they can transition into a more traditional school setting back into the home environment or into a, a, a boarding school setting, whatever's most appropriate for them that, that they can operate, um, you know, independently in those settings. Students who are coming to us as juniors and seniors are often graduating with us. And of those students, um, you know, I would say well into the 90, 90%, 90% uh, are, are graduating with us. And uh, impressively, the majority of those, I would say over 95% of those, are heading into college uh, from, uh, you know, from our school. That's wonderful. And we'll be right back uh, for our last segment with Mary Jo and Thomas after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. Today we're talking about options for troubled teens and we're looking at the continuum of care available for um, for those young people and also we're talking about therapeutic schools. Our guests today are Mary Jo DeGrandi, who is the Director of Admissions at the Academy at Swift River, and Thomas Ahern, who is the Director of Clinical Outreach for Aspen Education Group. Um, Thomas, we were also we're going to try and talk a little bit about wilderness programs. Could you explain to our listeners what they are and, and what type of folks end up in going to wilderness programs? Yeah, it, it, that's a good segue. Um, you know, as we were talking about therapeutic boarding schools, I think one of the important pieces that, uh, you know, sometimes our, uh, our consumers don't always um, get is that, 
in order to get into a therapeutic boarding school, it's important that young people are in a place where they can receive all the outstanding services that are available to them at that level of care. Um, and if they're not, which is often the time when we get the phone call, there's an acute need. There's been something that's happened uh, with, their, with their kid, and they, they don't know what to do. Um, and they're just not ready to take advantage of those kinds of services. Or they've had multiple interventions, and they just haven't worked in traditional settings. So what we found is that wilderness therapy, over the past 15 years or so, that wilderness therapy programs have had an unbelievable positive impact uh, as an uh, alternative treatment modality for those kinds of kids. Uh, they're great at diagnosing kids, assessing kids, and then preparing them for the next step. They're a little shorter term length. There's an average length of stay of about you know, eight weeks, six to eight weeks. But essentially the model is that we remove young people from all the stimulation and distractions of modern society and put them in, a, in an environment where, again, it's still a positive peer culture. It's not like the boot camp for kids that you often see on TV or through some of the other media um, uh, modalities. But it's really a positive environment where young people can focus on themselves and take responsibility for themselves and each other as they engage in um, activities that are outside and outdoors in an adventure um, environment. It allows kids to um, approach feelings, emotions, and behaviors that um, they couldn't do in a traditional therapist setting or a hospital setting because they're now hiking or they're now preparing a meal or they're setting up a, a, a bear trap, so to speak, as a metaphor for traps in their life. Um, so um, essentially that's what they're all about. Uh, parents come with a lot of questions about them. They're still relatively new in the sense that uh, they've become increasingly sophisticated in terms of their clinical uh, intervention as kids have become increasingly complicated. But they all kids get a therapist. Uh, they're supervised by a doctor. They participate in multiple group therapy sessions a week, um, family therapy, um, so, it's, again, it's a multidisciplinary approach, but with a completely different paradigm that sort of breaks and unsticks kids that just haven't responded well. And then we get them ready to transition to a therapeutic boarding school or back to their communities or what have you. But there, it's really a magical thing to, uh, to witness. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I got involved with uh, Aspen, uh, after seeing parents emerge from the wilderness with their kid, uh, feeling like they were, you know, their life was saved. You know, I think part of what we're talking today about, too, is the, the difference between a publicly funded system and a privately funded system. And some of our listeners will certainly be able to access some of the privately funded systems. But what about people who only have access to publicly funded systems? What do they do with troubled teens? Right. Well, that's another, uh, that's a whole other uh, show, I guess you'd say. Mary, but one of the things that we try to do is advocate for our parents as much as we possibly can, and that might mean that we've created, um, that we network with, you know, attorneys, uh, educational attorneys, educational advocates, um, other therapists to try to help empower parents to help them understand what their rights are um, and what are their ways of helping to uh, create options for them and their kids. Um, one of the other things that Aspen does that I don't think sure any, anyone else does at this level is provide a loan program, so uh, low-cost loans that parents can um, apply for to um, support them in, in their endeavors. But 
Um, I, I think, unless Mary Jo, you've got some other insight, I think, you know, one of the things that um, we do a lot of is just talking to parents about what are some ways that we can patch together um, resources to provide their kids with access to private services that um, we think are going to make a difference in their kid's life. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, you really hit all the, the salient points, Thomas. It's it's not easy, um, and certainly the much, many, much of the time, you know, private treatment um, can be expensive for families and difficult for them to afford. Um, you know, we do look at all the options. We really work hard with parents to uh, help them, you know, again, work with their local school district to see if there's school district funding, to see if there's some option for um, particular services that we provide to be um reimbursable by insurance, um, you know, the loan program that Thomas mentioned. So it is, it, it can be a challenge. Um, you know, certainly our goal is to really work with families and, and try to see if we can um, help match them up with programs also that are going to meet their needs. And our, uh, within Aspen as well, we have a great resource network so that uh, some of our, our advisors can also work with families to look at more local options if some of the private programs that we've been talking about here today aren't going to be affordable, um, but certainly, again, within that, we try to try our best to, to make them within reach of uh, many families. And, that, and that's one really where, right, right where we're at in terms of a, you know, a country. I mean, one of the things that we're in the middle of doing has to do with outcome studies and demonstrating empirical evidence that the things that we do work. And as that data emerges, we're in a much better position and, you know, our leadership is doing this now, sitting at the table with the insurance companies as, you know, insurance is, um, you know, federal government insurance is, is being implemented or, you know, changed as we know it. You know, the question would be if we can demonstrate the data and the outcome and we hold ourselves to standards that exceed what the industry standards currently are, can we make a, a reasonable argument that these are services that should be reimbursed by a person's insurance company? Um, that's, you've just heard the zeitgeist just in terms of where we are in this country and where we are as a company to try to provide that evidence that um, this is the kind of stuff that everyone should have access to. Well, another challenge for both the public and the private system is aftercare. I know for our residential program, unless there's a really tight aftercare plan in place, a lot of what happens in residential just dissipates after people leave. Right. Right. You know, and we um, and we try really hard with that as well. Not just via you know the transition work we do with families and with uh, our students as they're preparing to leave us, um, but we have a great um, aftercare program within. Aspen as a whole that parents have access to that can provide, you know, um, not just support from the primary therapist who's been working with them, um, but certainly we try to stay really wide open to continuing to maintain communication with these with families, help them locate resources within their community that can continue uh, to support them as a family and uh, support their child, um, as well as provide lots of parent coaching around, you know, how to help manage um, when behaviors are continuing to crop up. We know that there's a lot of fear and anxiety when uh, when our, our young people are transitioning from, you know, it, it more intensive treatment programs uh, back into the home setting and everybody can sort of be on walking on eggshells. And, you know, our goal is to really sort of take the anxiety down a notch, make sure there's a great safety network, um, a good, good safety net in place. Um, 
and help everybody be able to sort of own their own pieces of that in terms of how, what they can continue to work on, uh, knowing that it's a con- you know it's still going to be a step by step process. So, so we'll do. Is it six months or a year? I can't I can't remember exactly the amount of time that is that we follow up, Mary Jo. Yep. So we will follow up intensely with parent um, parent coaching and support. Um, as well as sort of that intensive individual support for the child for about three months, and then we sort of start taking it down a notch and and uh, for about six months after that initial three-month period so that we're really working with families to access support networks in their communities um, and really working with a lot of, you know, local, uh, you know, community-based therapists and um, and uh, uh, therapy networks and psychiatrists and psychologists so that they're, um, you know, they, they know what we're doing within the programs and that they can continue that work with families uh, so they're not, the families aren't feeling like they're floundering, but they're feeling more like it's a seamless transition um, back into a different kind of support network. Our show today has really flown by. Can you let folks know how to get in contact with you before we sign off? Absolutely. So if folks are interested in the Academy at Swift River, um, they're welcome to call 800-258-1770 or to find us online at www.academyatswiftriver.crchealth.com. Thank you so much. It was a very fast hour and a very illuminating one. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com.